Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, it's great to see you. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This is actually a very rare treat to be able to meet you in this country. I know you're usually traveling around Europe with hundreds of people around this time. What's it like to be grounded for so long? Uh, I guess in one word, frustrating. Um, Sooner or later, I'm going to have to hijack a plane if that's the only (laughs) way of traveling. You're looking forward to get back into the skies. Oh, absolutely. Rabbi Hirsch, your reputation precedes you. You are famously known for your incredibly vast knowledge of Europe and beyond. Rumor has it that you've spent more time in Poland than in London. Your History for the Curious series has been a huge hit with many hundreds of people watching it live during the pandemic. And due to very popular demand, we're grateful that you agreed to launch the podcast for the curious so that people can tune in wherever and whenever suits them. For those of you who don't know Rabbi Hirsch, just a little intro. He is the Director of Education in the JLE in London and has, over the last 20 years, run more than 250 tours. Is that is that about right? Yep. Yeah. In Europe to destinations such as Poland, Prague, Paris, Amsterdam, Budapest, just to name a few. He also specialized in Holocaust education, working with the Imperial War Museum in London and the Yad Vashem Museum in Israel. Rabbi Hirsch, it's a privilege. Now, your talk today which is the first of four on scandals in Anglo-Jewry, is dated 1278, which is obviously from the first period of the settlement of the Jews in England before the expulsion. And the fact that you have a specific date and title for it suggests that there are records and information dating back to then, which is interesting because I assume that there's very little evidence left of the Jews from that period. So from the perspective of a physical presence, in other words, uh, shawls, cemeteries, mikvois, you're right to say that there is very little there. Some have been discovered in uh, Oxford, in London, but little is visible externally of that Jewish presence, even though Jews lived uh, throughout England. Their numbers weren't very high, perhaps 15,000 at the peak, but it was very likely a lot lower than that. Yet more than once in the 220 years that they were here, a Jew would be the richest individual in England. So really the fact that there is little that we can see is unusual. I guess it points firstly to how long ago it actually was, and secondly to the fact that there was a 350 year period where there were no Jews here. And the Christian population, especially the landowners, would have taken advantage of this to seize and repurpose any Jewish land. But having said that, that's that's true of buildings. It's a very different story when we talk of documentation, especially uh, social and economic records. It's true that there was an almost wholesale destruction of Jewish writing, so uh, what you would call svarim, at the time of the expulsion, and therefore very few religious works remain. There are exceptions, such as the Eitz Chaim, a forerunner of the Shulchan of the Code of Jewish Law, and the commentary on various tractates of Talmud by 
Rabbi Eliyahu Menachem of London, which is uh, actually frequently quoted by no less than Rav Yontav Lippmann Heller in his commentary on the Mishnah. But in the main, Jewish religious documents are far, a few and far between. Documents of day-to-day life, though, do remain. There's one peculiarity in English documents which makes uh, research a little harder, and that is movement, relocation. So if you have, you know, Aaron from the Exeter community moving to Dorchester, he would be referred to as Aaron of Exeter. But if he then moves on to Bristol, he's then going to be known as Aaron of Dorchester which makes it difficult to trace anyone's movements. If, if I can interrupt you a second, who are these Jews of England? Where do they come from? Who are they? Right, okay. So I guess before we dive into the specifics of the case, uh, let's identify these Jews of England, as you put it. Um, the first known Jewish settlement occurs around 1070 in the wake of the Norman Conquest. You have Jews from the Normandie region and particularly Rouen settling in the southeast of England and gradually moving towards London and beyond, I mean, across England and Wales. There's uh, no recorded settlement of Jews in Scotland. How's, how about Ireland? Uh, there was an attempt in 1079, didn't really go down very well, but they are across the country and they settle in a multitude of places, towns where today there's nothing at all. Colchester, Warwick, Winchester, Tewkesbury, Canterbury, Bedford. You, you have Jews in all of these places, but they were French Jews. They continue to speak French in England, but they saw themselves as French and they maintained links with mainland Europe. Their intention was to continue to live as they had done in the Kingdom of France. Legislation was the same. It was simply that there was a new conquest which offered new opportunities in a new area. And that's the story of the beginning of the settlement. The 12th century would see changing fortunes, I guess. On the one hand, they were granted a charter of rights by the king. They could trade throughout the land, build synagogues. Uh, yet you have the first blood libel in Europe in Norwich in 1144. And at the coronation of Richard in 1189, there are riots which eventually spread to the tragedy in York. Uh, that's the 12th century. And then the, the final century, the 13th, is pretty much a downward spiral. I mean, students of English history know of 1215. It's the date of the signing of the Magna Carta, forcing the king to give concessions to the barons. But from a Jewish perspective, this was a disaster for a number of reasons, both because the king was the owner and the protector of the Jews, and this was now at risk, and because neither side kept to the terms of the Magna Carta, which is not that well known, and there was a civil war in England. And then there was legislation throughout the century, 1275 in particular, which we will come back to. And these laws weren't simply temporary setbacks. They were there to reduce the Jews to financial poverty and to have no power. So why didn't they just leave earlier? Didn't they couldn't they see what was about to happen? Well, I mean, leave where to. Uh, most of Christian Europe would have reflected a similar setup. Uh, ever since the 
the first Crusades of 1096, and especially after the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, there was anti-Jewish legislation across the continent. Mm. So, What was their occupation, these Jews of England? What'd they do? So the majority of Jewish families uh, would be engaged in general commerce. In 1223, we find a delivery to the Bishop of Southwark of 58,000 dried herrings. That's just a weekly delivery to opponents. Uh, <laughs> well, that was probably a fine <laughs> rather than a sale, to be honest. And there were doctors, artisans, but the single economic activity that dwarfed all the others in scope and in, in profitability was, uh, of course, money lending. Until the 1240s, the Jews were the principal source of credit in England, for the entire country. Uh, it's not a myth, uh, it's the reality. And from records, we get a sense of the extent of money lending. The wealthy would obviously large lend large sums, yet you would find widows lending uh, 10 marks, uh, and in, in wills, in marriage contracts, sums are set aside for children to be loaned out at uh, interest. I, mean, I guess it's uh, you could say it was a game the whole family could play. And fascinatingly, all these contracts gave rise to a Jewish word entering the English medieval vocabulary, which is the word uh, star or star. It's used in medieval legal history in England to mean a contract. Um, it's a star which would be written, if done by Jews, in Hebrew, even if they are lending money to a non-Jew, and countersigned by, by both sides. The anti-Semitic images that we've all seen, especially used in World War II, of the Jews holding the money was that due to the fact that they were, we were all moneylenders? That was our occupation? Broadly speaking, across Europe, you have got Jews being pushed into a very narrow set of fields. They obviously were not allowed into the guilds or into universities. And moneylending at the time was prohibited between Christians. So the Jews were a convenient go-between. And yes, I mean, it, it's based on fact, uh, but you have to take the broader picture into account. In other words, it only arose because of the limitations that were imposed upon them by the Christians in whose countries they lived. Um, and we've got, uh, you know, examples of these uh, documents in, uh, in Durham Priory. To this day, you will find Hebrew 13th century documents relating to the activities of Aaron of York. His father, Yesi, was one of the leaders of the Jews of that city who perished with the rest of the community um, at York Castle in, in 1190. But the son, Aaron, returns to the city when a new Jewish community was established and becomes its leading uh, personality, uh, which, by the way, means that the idea that there was a harem of settling in York is not that credible, given that within living memory of that massacre, Jews came back to the city, indeed descendants. And this Aaron of York was appointed as the secular head of the Jews in England by the king, 
and he was obliged from time to time to satisfy the greed of the king from his own private resources, which left him a poor man when he died in 1268. And Stars in Durham record his financial dealings, which goes back to what we said earlier about written records. There are probably over 300 documents in Hebrew which have been published, although that would account for only a small fraction of the ones that made their rounds in medieval England at the time, but we are still finding them and putting them out there. Uh, Cambridge University Library published one in 2019, and uh, at the bottom you uh, find the words Hinani hechosum mata, I, the undersigned, moide hoidogmura, I fully, it's not an admission, but uh, I fully agree with everything that's here, and it's dated Yom Pashka, which is Easter, Shnas Shleishim Vashalish Lamelech. Henry ben Hamelech Johan. So we're referring to Henry III, the son of John and therefore the nephew of Richard the Lionheart. And the 33rd year of his rule puts it in 1249. So you have all this documentation and this is the occupation that the majority of Jews are involved in. And we have to realize that because each king was able to arbitrarily raise taxes from the Jewish communities, it was the the interest of the king to encourage Jews to make money, because the richer they became, the greater his opportunity to tax them. Aaron of Lincoln, he dies in 1186. He was the richest man in England, and when he dies, all of his bonds go to the king. And when there is violence in the late 12th century as a result of the coronation, which caused the loss of many Jewish bonds burned by the people who owed the money to the Jews. It was the easiest way not to have to pay. It was their new record. So the king is losing out and he establishes an exchequer of the Jews to keep these bonds safe. It's in his own interest. And there are locked chests which are called arche and they have keys which were kept by uh, two jews two christians and the king's representative very safe yes absolutely <laughs> and as i say uh, self-interest at the heart of this uh, the problem was and that's why we mentioned the 13th century is a downward spiral that times of economic hardship led to hostility towards the jews from the point of view of the barons, English Jews were competitors, and they become targets in the conflict between the king and the barons. And you find supporters of the barons looting London's Jewry in 1215 and demolishing Jewish homes. There's other examples. I mean, there's a clerk of the Exchequer who draws a cartoon in the 1200s, around 1233, in which the Jew Isaac of Norwich wears the king's crown, and Isaac was the richest Jew in England when that sketch was created. And the 1270s, that changed everything? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, you can't really talk about Edward I or the expulsion without looking at what happened in 1275 and 1278, very much so. Uh, It it starts a little earlier. It starts with uh, Henry III's financial needs, which increased in the 1240s because of his spending on uh, military campaigns. Uh, 
to solve his financial needs, he of course turns to the Jews. And there are a series of heavy taxes that followed, which ruined the wealthiest of them. Jewish creditors uh, had to liquidate their IOUs, their bonds, often to their disadvantage because they were doing so earlier. And this led to a rapid decline in the Jews' economic potential going forward. And of course, back then, if the Jews' usefulness is in decline, then the accusations against them and legislation against them increases, as you can imagine. It's almost like a vicious circle. The more successful we get, the more we're taxed, the more we lose our money, the more, we, the more we're scapegoats. And... So as long as rulers were able to keep their greed somewhat in check, it's worked. Uh, the moment their needs became so great that the short term overweighed the mid or longer term, at that stage, it was going to be disastrous for the Jews. And, it, it, you know, this story repeats itself uh, across Europe um, and in, in some ways wider than that. And uh, you then get legislation. So 1275, there are laws which prohibited all future Jewish loans if interest is being charged, which basically brings to an end the possibility of Jews lending money. Um, the Christians now see themselves as having little use for the Jews of England. They were too poor to be of service. And since Jews were viewed as a commodity, they can now be thrown away. They can now be disregarded. The legislation of 1275 follows on from their poverty and sets the scene for the next part, which is um, widespread action against the Jews, and that happens in 1278. All Jewish adult males in England are arrested across the country and imprisoned in the Tower of London. Now, over the years, non-Jewish scholars have dismissed this as an exaggeration, but uh, detailed research, um, including that undertaken by uh, Tzvira Rakech in the 90s, provides us not just with general evidence, but detailed list of names. So do we have an approximate number of the amount of Jews around then? Um, so the way to calculate it, if we talk about 600 heads of households, let's assume, I mean, this is somewhat of assumption for children, three, four children per family who have made it, uh, you know, beyond infancy um, and the, the spouse. We're probably talking around uh, 3,000 Jews in England at that time, which uh, works with uh, records and taxation records that exist from the Exchequer. So, you know, it would make sense that those were the numbers. We also have records about payments made to the Sheriff of London um, in order to pay for the food and lodging, so to speak, of these Jews for 140 days in the Tower of London. And the number given is 600 Jews. So that, that does seem to be borne out by a general documentation. Now, uh, of course, there had to be a reason to be able to arrest them. There has to be a, a smoking gun. And I guess the way to put it is uh, money talks. 
but if the coins from medieval England would do so, they would reveal a rather dark relationship between the Jews and coinage in the 13th century, specifically in one area, coin clipping, which means cutting off uh, some of the silver from the edges of a coin and still passing it off at its full value. You can find ac accusations about the abuse of coinage at any period in which the face value coins were in circulation. In other words, you had actual silver coins. And for instance, until 1247 in England, there was a coin called the Short Cross Penny, which, as the name indicates, means that much of the coin didn't have a cross on it. It was the Short Cross Coin. And this cross was surrounded by an inner circle, so it was very easy to snip narrow sections from the edges without it being too noticeable. And there were Jews and Christians arrested for this crime. But by and large, the Jewish community was unaffected by these accusations. That's at the beginning or in the middle of the 13th century. After 1247, firstly, new coins are minted. But 25 years down the line, you have the same problem that there has been coin clipping, and just the very wear and tear of coins over these 25 years reduce its size. They're probably now three quarters of their proper weight. Edward comes back from a failed crusade to a country that needs governing, and he ideally needs a scapegoat to focus on, and a cause, and that was the coin clipping and the expendable Jews. So, as a result, the entire Jewish male adult community is arrested. And, as I say, we have evidence to, to prove of their existence. There's a payment to uh, 30 foot sergeants for keeping custody of 600 Jews in the seventh year of King Edward's reign. And far more terrible than the arrests were the results because of these 600 up to and close to 290 of them were hanged and if we look at comparable records with christian arrests the anti-semitism speaks for itself so we have records of around 330 christians being arrested and around uh, 270 Jews. There were more, but this is what we ha have names for, detailed lists. And of these, it's approximately the same number. The amount of Jews condemned is 58. The amount of Christians, 1. The amount of Jews hanged, 30. And the amount of Christians, 7. Uh, whereas Jews let off far more lightly by just being given a fine uh, there are only 81, uh, whereas there are 255 Christians who are let off lightly. And therefore, religious prejudice was definitely a critical factor in this. And if somebody was executed, the king would gain all their property. So there was a real financial advantage to convicting a Jew for this crime. But the important thing to be aware of, and this is possibly where the word scandal comes in, is that there is another side to this narrative. The Jews were not entirely blameless. Uh, you have Sefer Hasidim, 
so around 1230, who writes that those who clip coins will in the end lose their property. So it was clearly happening, although perhaps in small numbers that's not indicated. However, there is a responsum, there's a tshuva, addressed to a rabbi in London, written by the Maram Rottenberg, who was the leading halachic authority in Germany at the time, perhaps the leading halachic authority of all Ashkenaz, about coin clipping. And it's written sometime towards the end of the 1200, so in the period roughly that uh, we're discussing. And the specifics in the Truva, the, the question is as follows. The Jews in England, some Jews in England, were forced to take an oath that they wouldn't clip coins. However, these Jews in their mind made a non-verbal addition not to be bound by this oath. And they believe that or they believed that this had invalidated the oath, so they carried on clipping coins. And uh, this rabbi asks the Maram Rottenberg, you know, what do we do now? So the Maram answers in various paragraphs. First of all, he says, it's irrelevant if you've taken an oath not to clip coins. Doing so is theft, and robbing Jews is forbidden. You know, who cares whether there is an oath or not? Secondly, this creates a public Chilol Hashem, because when other Jews innocently pass on these coins, unaware of what they're doing, they will now be targeted by those who are aware that they've been uh, shortchanged, quite literally. And the Maram writes very forcefully that this has already led to bloodshed and the destruction of Jews in France and England. Then he says that the Talmudic ruling that a person can invalidate his oath, uh, which is forced upon him by, uh, by extortionists or murderers, by having in mind at the time of the oath that it's not binding, that doesn't apply here because this is a legal oath. This is something which is within the authority of a king or civil authority to forbid. So, you know, you don't have that, that, that escape route. And finally, when non-Jews will find out that Jews clipped coins despite their oath, Jews will be classed as liars. And he adds in a note uh, in this responsum, if your authority and my authority carry enough weight, these Jews should be flogged. And interestingly, he uses a sort of a poetic line. The line he applies to coin clipping um, is a line taken from the Talmud referring to shaving. He calls it Giluach Shiyeshboi Hashchosa. And uh, students of the Talmud will be aware um, of uh, how this is applied in the, in the normal sense. And it's got to be said that the longer term outcome of coin clipping can be seen in literature. Medieval literature has the coin clipping Jew as a stock character in, uh, in depictions of greed. There's a poem uh, about the, the plowman, um, which um, something along the lines of, I learned a lesson from the Jews to weigh pence with a weight and pare down the heaviest, something along those lines. And this was written roughly 90 years after Edward I had expelled his Jews, but is still believed by Englishmen who've lived their entire lives without meeting any real Jews. 
And so much like Bernie Madoff, the actions of one or of a few Jews involved in theft and Chilol Hashem reflect on all Jews. And therefore, even if Jews were being unfairly targeted and were the victims of systematic anti-Jewish legislation, which they clearly were, it doesn't allow the rule book to be thrown out of the window because of the consequences that arise to uh, generally to innocent parties. Wow. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a really fascinating glimpse into part one of the four-part series that you'll be doing on scandals in Jewish history. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Any questions or comments, please send to podcasts at jle.org.uk. We'll see you same time, same place next week for part two. Thank you. Thank you.